0: Hello, welcome to episode four of the IFLR Awards podcast. I'm James Wilson. I'm responsible for the research for the IFLR Awards. So up to this point in these podcasts, we've been talking about some of the highlights and key themes that emerge from this year's awards research. But here we have something different. We have an interview with Christopher Giancarlo. Chris is the former chair of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, he was the CFTC's 13th chair up until April 2019. And more recently, he's launched the Digital Dollar Project, which says what it wants in its title. It promotes the creation of a digital dollar. Chris is this year's Eiffel Art America's Awards Contribution to Regulatory Reform Award winner. This is an award that goes to single figure at a regulator, listing platform, exchange or monetary authority, or who's in private practice, which is where... Chris is at the moment, and it reflects their work within the industry and specifically for improving the state of the financial markets. It's worth noting also that Chris, who has picked up the moniker Crypto Dad, is also a big contributor to thought leadership. The interview is conducted by IFLA America's editor, John Crabb, who's based in New York. It's a great interview. It's very expansive. It covers his views on what Covid-19 has shown us about the financial markets and the regulatory framework, the changing perspective on cross-border collaboration, why the US should create a digital currency, why we'll need a multiplicity of benchmarks in the post liberal world, and Chris's achievements at the CFTC. And perhaps most importantly, at the end of the interview, Chris talks about his band and the book he's busy writing on the digital transformation of the markets. As an aside, we do have other interviews coming up in this podcast series, so please keep an eye out. We hope you enjoy this interview with Chris. Here it is.
1: Uh, Good morning, Chris, and thanks for taking the time to do this with us today. Um, First and foremost, congratulations on the award. It's obviously quite an unusual time to receive an award. This exceptional environment we're in is an unavoidable subject, so it's probably best we tackle that right at the start. Um, so what has the COVID-19 crisis revealed to you about the market? Would you say it's given you a different perspective on the work you've been doing and the topics you focus focused so much of your time on?
2: Yeah, you know, John, after five years at the Commission, I came away with several observations. The first was that just like so much of our physical infrastructure, our bridges and our tunnels and our uh, mass transportation systems, our airports, that were once state-of-the-art in the mid to late 20th century, have been sadly allowed to decay and deteriorate, in some cases become obsolete in the, uh, this new part of the 21st century. Well, the same is true about a good portion of our financial market infrastructure. Sadly, systems and even regulatory systems that were state-of-the-art in the last century are aging and are decaying, in some cases becoming obsolete in the 21st century. And that brings me to the second observation, and that is that we are truly going from the first wave of the Internet, which was an Internet of of information, to a second wave. And I'm not the originator of these ideas. Much smarter people than me, like Don Tapscott and others have spoken about this, this new wave of the Internet of things of value, uh, the digitization of things of value. And, and we saw the early stages of that at the CFTC with the increasing use of blockchain for global supply systems and com- commodity transfers, but also with uh, uh, the uh, cryptocurrencies and, uh, and certainly Bitcoin futures. And that wave now is coming upon us. And, 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 and that wave juxtaposes against this obsolete financial market infrastructure. And that's what brings me to COVID, because in this COVID, you're seeing the shortcomings of that antiquated system reveal themselves, whether it's in the form of government benefits um, and the the challenges of getting those to underbanked population through the use of paper checks, whether it's in the use of money itself, which carries uh, the virus, or whether it's in global supply systems. And so the COVID crisis is revealing both the shortcomings of the system but also the opportunities inherent in this new digital technology.
1: Great. So that that neatly segues us on to the next question, I think. So um, obviously during your time at the Commission, you spent a lot of time working with your European counterparts on various initiatives that sought to bring the U.S. and the EU together. Um, so what do you think are going to be some of the key areas of financial regulation where cross-border harmonization will become more important, uh, of course, between the U.S. and Europe and as well as china but also with other lesser developed relationships do you feel like the u.s is moving in the right direction
2: you know i spent a lot of time on the issue of cross-border rule harmonization during my tenure at the cftc and it seemed like the the approach to harmonization in the wake of the financial crisis uh, i i believe had a a sort of intellectual flaw to it and it 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 was, it was the, the the debate over harmonization was one of either e- closer harmonization was a good thing, further harmonization was a bad thing, and it was pre it was built on the wrong premise. And the premise was that all financial markets are the same, and therefore there should be sort of a singular global standard. That's a false premise. The United States financial markets are different than the European financial markets, in some ways substantially different. And the European financial markets are quite different than Asian financial markets, in some case, cases substantially different, different in depth and breadth and sophistication. And if you if you get that foundational understanding wrong, you then get to the next level, say, well, then regulation needs to be all the same, and therefore what is good is close is similarity, um, 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 and, and but it's built on the wrong premise. If you start with the premise that the markets have fundamentally different challenges and opportunities, then what you get to is not a question of whether there should be closeness and harmonization. What you get to, so, so you, you don't want to reach identicality. What you want to reach is interoperability. Regulations for each marketplace should be tailored to those marketplaces. We should, in the United States, have a different approach to reg reform than Europe does, than Asia does. What we need to make sure is our approach is interoperable with their approach, that they they adopt a series of common principles. Just as the United States led with the regulation of securities markets in the 1930s and adopted core principles about disclosure, core principles about registration, but disclosure in the United States, what's important to U.S. marketplace may be different than what's important to a European. And we should approach the same way in derivatives. The goal is not identicality. The goal has got to be interoperability. And I think we move away from maybe some of the naive assumptions in the immediate wake of the crisis to, I think, a more comprehensive view of, of both the similarities and the differences in our markets, recognizing that sovereign regulators have to come up with the regulations well tailored to their market, then our goal should be interoperability not similarity or identicality.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So another thing you've spoken about then is the the modernization of the financial markets which obviously kind of ties in with this too and the financial system more broadly. So what what do you think are the are the greatest challenges at the moment to achieving this goal? Yeah.
2: So, you know, as I began, I think it's critically important that we modernize our markets and mm-hmm. modernize them um, uh, it, 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 with taking full account of this new wave of digitization of, mm-hmm. of, of things of value. But there are a number of changes. One of the biggest changes I would just simply say is generational. Mm-hmm. You know, every generation has its comfort level with, with a technology that, with which they came of age. And I think that as my generation passes to your generation and the generations to follow, the greater comfort with, with digital technology will be reflected in their regulatory mm-hmm. response. The other thing is is that, I, I, having spent five years in, in the media spotlight, I must say, the, the the mass media combined with the political narratives make it really hard for real people to go into government and go into regulation. You know, the game of political gotcha that just never seems to end in in political centers is so counterproductive to bringing, you know, thoughtful and innovative people into government. And and then, you know, there's always the problem of, quite frankly, the commercial sector pays much better for people that are on the cutting edge of technological innovation. So it's very hard to recruit that kind of talent to government, especially when you say to them, oh, and by the way, you've got to basically sell all your assets, you've got to disclose all, what assets you don't sell, and you've got to be in the media spotlight for a game of gotcha that just is 24-7. I, I think those... You know, that, that lack of, quite frankly, statesmanship and maturity that exists in the public sector today is, is really a shame. And it's something that we free citizens need to do something about and stand up to so that our government is as attractive to innovative thinkers as is uh, Silicon Valley or any other area of the economy.
1: And do you think that one of the ways that can be done is with the digital dollar, which you've been kind of very vocal in your support of lately?
2: Yeah, so... so uh, you know, when when China does something big, whether it's to build a blue water navy or whether it's to uh, create a digital RMB, it's directed by the Communist Party, which sets a mandate and then directs it down to, you know, all 35 million, 40 million Communist Party members and then out through the the state and the country. When Europe does big things, it's often the public sector, the official sector that leads it, lays down a framework and then tells innovator, OK, innovators, here's the framework, innovate to this framework. Mm-hmm. But when we do big things in the United States, traditionally, whether it's putting a man on the moon or whether it's building the internet, it's often sort of a kind of a messy collaboration between the private sector and the public sector that uh, uh, may look unorganized, but in the long run, it's actually a huge explosion of creative talent. That's what we at the Digital Dollar Project are seeking to catalyze a a, a series of public-private partnerships to... Uh, to create the next version of the U.S. dollar, a digital dollar, a, a tokenized uh, uh, central bank digital currency.
1: Okay. Now let's just talk about crypto for a while. It's safe to say you were chairman during a very interesting time in the securities markets, um, which led to, for a few years now, you've been bestowed the moniker as crypto debt, which I'm quite intrigued to know if you if you'd like being called that.
2: Well, it's better than other things I've been called, uh, okay. of course.
1: I'm <laughs> <No>, sure. <laughs> um, but Given the situation the world finds itself in today, how important are or, or could developments like blockchain, cryptocurrency, and digitalization be? Um, and what role do you think we play in both our media and long-term future?
2: Right. So, so um, it's not a question of can be. It's a question of will be. This is our future. This is what's coming. The 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 world of things of value are being digitized, being decentralized, being uh uh internet connected. The really the only question for me is, what role um should society play in this? What values should be should be brought to this new wave of the internet? And that's why I'm I, I I'm so vocal in encouraging the United States to step up and get involved in these efforts, because it's a question ultimately it's, it's a question at one level of really attractive use cases, you know how do we get uh, benefits to the unbanked population? How do we uh, lower the cost and the time involved in, in global remittances? Uh, how do we um, do payments faster? There are there a number, number of uh, very attractive Opportunities. That's level one. Going down a level deeper, this is about fundamental architecture. This is why you build mass transportation systems and new airports for, for the business, the 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 the, the entrepreneurship, the, the the wealth creation that can be built on top of that infrastructure. But let's go even deeper, even deeper. Why should the United States create a, a central bank digital currency? Because it's about what values will be brought to the future of money. Will they be values of say um, uh, 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 state surveillance by 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 non-democrat non-demo- states and and nations, or will they be the values of pluralism, of free market economics, of free speech, of z- appropriate zones of privacy balanced against legitimate law enforcement interests? What values will we be brought to bear? The United States played a leading role in the creation of the internet. And as a result, the internet reflects values of openness, values of, uh, 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 of, 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 uh, uh, public and private, a balance between the interests of the public and the private. Will we bring the same values to the internet of money is the question ultimately that drives my response. And my response is it's time for the U S to get in the game.
1: Okay. Um, So let's move on to the the LIBOR transition, which is a pretty big topic on everyone's minds right now in every sector. So alongside Richard Sandor, you've been doing a lot of work to develop and promote the alternative reference rate Ameribor, which as an alternative to LIBOR. Um, So what's the benefit of this rate and, and why do you think, what does it do that the secured overnight financing rate doesn't do? And do you think they can work in harmony?
2: So Ameribor is a replacement uh, for LIBOR. And it's a complement to SOFR. So let me explain what that means. What is LIBOR? LIBOR is a, it, it's, meant, it's meant to be a benchmark rate that measures the credit rated, credit weighted risk of banks lending to other banks. Once upon a time, Large money center banks actually used to fund their operations by lending to each other an overnight LIBOR. The problem was is that market has diminished down now to where it's it's <clears throat> it's a tiny market. In in 30-day LIBOR, there's less than a dozen transactions a day. And yet, built on top of that are trillions of dollars in US mortgages and other commercial credit transactions. So we have a benchmark that's enormous built upon. a a marketplace that's minuscule. That is a vulnerability. And that's why LIBOR has to go away. That's why LIBOR will go away. And that's why we need to move to other benchmarks. Now, I say benchmarks plural. In every major financial market, you have a multiplicity of benchmarks for different purposes. In the equities market, for example, there well may be more benchmarks than there are actually individual stocks. I mean, there are hundreds of benchmarks to measure progress in the equity markets. So it, it's an anomaly that we would, or it's, it's an oddity that we would somehow go from a singular benchmark in in, in, in credit to a singular benchmark. And so we believe in the, in the marketplace of ideas, we believe that there should be choice to lenders in the marketplace. SOFR is what's called a risk-free rate. It doesn't measure lenders and borrowers' credit worthiness because it's tied to the treasury to US Treasuries and therefore it's a really a measurement of, of the US government's treasury. It's called it's it's considered a risk-free rate. And that is fine for some uses. But many uses that used to use LIBOR still look for a credit enhanced rate. And Ameribor is a credit weighted risk. It actually measures bank-to-bank lending here in the United States. So we believe Ameribor, as I said at the outset, is is an alternative it's a replacement for LIBOR, and it's a complement to SOFR.
1: Okay, and and how is the the development and uptake of that going?
2: That, fantastic, Ameribor has done brilliantly through the COVID crisis. It's it's seen record days of trading activity, record volume levels. It's been extremely stable while growing, and it's growing in both depth and breadth. And most importantly, it never required any U.S. government um, market-making assistance or assistance to the marketplace. It's truly an organic market of bank-to-bank lending uh, across the United States. Now, its participants have tended to be, so far, regional banks, uh, uh, community banks, uh, smaller banks. But increasingly, we're seeing more and more activity uh, uh, up the food chain. And we're seeing activity now from commercials as well. The likes of John Deere uh, are, are lending in this market and other uh, uh commercial credit lenders are also using now the Ameribor rate so it's growing insurance companies are now using the marketplace so it's growing and it's growing organically and it's growing rapidly and it's growing uh steadily it's been it's been going for four years now it's reaching critical mass
1: okay um so you just mentioned influence from the US government so it's been almost a year since you left the US government and you've now had a little time to reflect on that Period of your life. So what would you say were the biggest challenges at the commission? What you're most proud of, and would you say that these answers have changed since the last time we spoke, just after you'd left your position, and your legacy has come into a little bit more focus?
2: Yeah, you know, when I arrived at the commission in 2014, its focus was really uh, a, a, a rearward, a, a backward-facing focus. It was it was focused on the last crisis, and it was focused on implementing the response to that crisis. And that was by necessity. That was the job it was assigned to do. It was doing it well. The CFTC moved faster than any other agency in the United States or anywhere in the world in implementing the agreed reforms, reforms that I pretty much support, I very much supported. Um, But it still was a backward focus. And the thing I'm most proud of is taking that focus and saying, okay, we've got to complete What we've done in the past, let's keep you know one eye in the rearview mirror, but let's start looking out the windshield straight ahead because there are new challenges. And you know, peacetime generals fight the last war, and they say that economists fight the last recession. You know, regulators too often can be fighting the last crisis and not focusing on what's ahead. And I was determined that we would look at what's ahead. So the very first thing I did uh, at becoming chairman is insisted that the that the agency, for the first time ever conduct crisis uh, planning drills. We did um, agency-wide drills at least every six months during the, the two and a half years that I was running the agency to prepare, prepare for another crisis, a different kind of crisis. Unfortunately, we didn't test for a, a pandemic, but we tested for virtually everything else and we did it with other government agencies and with our key uh, clearing houses and exchanges. And I think that left the agency in good stead for what it's facing now, but more importantly, we started dealing with the changing nature, nature of our markets. We created a, a, a market intelligence branch to better understand what was going on in the markets. And we created Lab CFTC to look even further down the road at the technological change that were taken in our markets. And I think that uh, during the time of my chairmanship, the agency really rightfully took its place as one of the most forward-looking agencies, uh, not just in the United States, but abroad. And I'm very proud of that.
1: Okay, so not just at the cftc then do you think that the the tools that were developed during the last crisis or after the last crisis have been sufficient in dealing with this current one How have yes for the test of time
2: uh, the answer is yes i mean this crisis, uh, a health crisis, but has put enormous strain on the financial markets and, and the financial infrastructure, generally. And I think it's held up very, very well. I think that the the better capitalization of financial institutions has held up well. I think a lot of the changes uh, in the clearing infrastructure is held up remarkably well. Uh, uh, derivative markets and, and the clearinghouses that support them have not required any uh, government assistance of any kind during this crisis. And I think that's what one of the key objectives of the Dodd-Frank Act and, and global reform was to make sure that wouldn't be the case. So I think that the, the, the reforms have served well. Uh, but I also think that the uh, better understanding of market activity that we sought to engender in the years following the crisis has also served well.
1: Okay. That's good to hear. Um, So last June we spoke, um, as I've mentioned, and you told me then that you were a workaholic, but that you had plans for an extensive summer break after finishing your post at the CFTC. Did you manage to do that? Or was it, was work too tempting for you? And similarly, how has the lockdown been for you to manage?
2: Yeah, so so uh, there's been some good uh, throughout this. Uh, one is I've ha- I definitely have had more time with, with my family. Uh, it's been nice to be back in the home. We have an old Victorian home in northern New Jersey that we restored about 15 years ago, and it's nice to be here. And I've had two of my three adult children spending some time with us. Uh, so that's been great. Um, I did get some vacation time after leaving the commission, got up to the Western Adirondacks where we've been vacationing for years. And we also have a home in Southern Vermont that I share with uh, my three brothers and we got to spend some time there. But I've also done some things I really like to do. And and one is that I, I like to play music and I uh, got some of the band together and we've been doing, we had been doing some performing. In fact, we did probably one of the last uh, performances before the crisis in, in late February uh, at the 76 house in, in Tappan, New York, which is a great old venue, a great music spot. We had a couple hundred people there to 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 celebrate with us. And the other thing I'm doing, uh, John, is I'm working on a book. Um, I'm working on a book on this, this digital transformation of markets and what we saw when we were at the CFTC and I think what's just ahead of us. And I'm really excited about that. My goal is to have the manuscript finished by the one-year anniversary of my leaving the commission in July and hopefully have it on bookshelves at the end of the year. So, that's a real pleasure. I like to write and it's a nice opportunity to have uh, reflections on my, my Washington time.
1: I, I look forward to reading that. It's um, certainly an interesting topic. It's um, a shame we couldn't have a recording of your, your concert for the podcast, but maybe next time. Maybe. Okay, Chris, Great. That's, uh, that's one of my questions today. So thank you so much for your time. Great, John. Again, congratulations on the award. Thank you for that. Sorry we couldn't have a uh, the black tie event, but these things happen. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Perfect. Right up. Much. Thank you, John. Thank you.